0: Well, good Saturday morning, friends. Good to be with you again. Wonderful time we just had in Romans, uh, there in chapter 4. If you open your Bibles back up to Romans, we're going to continue going through much of this epistle. Uh, Like Greg, I'm sorry we don't have time to go through everything. From this wonderful picture of faith that we have in Abraham... Paul goes on in chapter 5 to explain a little bit more of how it is that we are, like Abraham was, counted righteous uh, with God in faith. He explains our connection to Abraham and our connection to Adam as a, a different and even a more fundamental parallel to our being in Christ. And then he thinks about us being alive in Christ in chapter 6. What that actually means in our Christian lives. And in chapter 7, he turns to the vexed question of the role of sin and the role of God's law in light of all that he's been saying. Now, I, I should just say that to many people, it is clear that whoever Paul is describing... In chapter 7 uh, is evidently not a Christian uh, Paul describes the man if you look in verse 14 Romans chapter 7 verse 14 as being sold as a slave to sin and so it's uh, argued Paul would never describe a Christian uh, with such language he's just said in chapter 6 that we are free from the reign of sin in our lives on the other hand, many people have written that they are sure uh, that the person Paul describes here in chapter 7 must be a Christian because, among other reasons, you look there in chapter 7, verse 22, he says he delights in God's law. And we know from Paul's presentation of depravity in chapter 3 that Greg alluded to that, that poetry of selections from the Old Testament scriptures in Chapter 3, verses 8 to 18, or 10 to 18, that depravity describes us, and therefore we, we don't delight in our old nature in God's law. A non believer, a non Christian, would not delight in God's law. Well, I would say this is the most disputed thing in the book of Romans, but actually, almost every chapter in Romans has famous <laughs> disputes. Uh, chapter 11 is a famous dispute. Chapter 9, that I'll be covering later this afternoon, Lord willing, is a famous dispute. Well, in this one particularly, I'm not sure how you've thought about it or what you've concluded about the passage before, but I think the very fact that Christians are confused about this, uh, that that we disagree on this, may be telling in itself. Imagine a single passage which we feel could so well represent our experience of the New Age having been begun in Christ by the Spirit, and yet not being culminated or completed yet. But this is our experience, isn't it? Sin and death continue, and yet so do grace and victory over sin. Uh, This whole passage is about the triumph of God's grace in Christ, ultimately. It explains more carefully what God, by his grace, triumphs, over in our lives. So, if you look back at chapter six, it's about the newness of the life we have in Christ. Chapter seven explains a little bit then of the idea of sin and sin in the life of someone contemplating the law of God. Back in chapters two and three, remember we thought about last night. Paul had showed that just possessing the law doesn't make us all right. Uh, Possessing the law alone doesn't put us in a state of being vindicated before God. Well, here in chapter 7, he explores a bit more of what he had said back in chapter 4 and chapter 5 about sin being stimulated by the law. And then in chapter 8, he reassures us of the salvation that has already been written about, which is not based on our works at all. It's not put in jeopardy by any continuing struggle with sin. It's based on God's grace alone. Well, let me suggest Paul's argument can be followed in in three questions, really. Number one, what's our relationship to God's rules? What's our relationship to God's rules? Number two, are God's rules good? And number three, do God's rules kill us? And just in case uh, you're going to have a hard time listening to a second sermon in a row... Let me go ahead and tell you the answer to those three questions. You can write them down. And then I really give you stewardship of the next 40 minutes yourself. You get to figure out what to do with it. But here we go. So number one, what's our relationship to God's rules? Well, Paul says we're dead to them. We're dead to them. And number two, are God's rules good? Yes. And number three, do God's rules kill us? No. Now, all I'm going to do for the next 45 minutes is repeat what I just said at a little more length. <laughs> Try to unpack it a little bit. Hopefully, you'll understand chapter 7 a little bit more as we go through So, we begin where Paul begins the chapter, dealing with the question, what's our relationship to God's rules? And this, I think, is what he's, he's dealing with in the first six verses of our passage. What's our relationship to the law? Paul makes it clear here that the law doesn't deliver us from sin. We Christians have died to the law. Now we belong to Christ. Well, here in these first six verses, he he lays this out in in principle in verse 1, and then he illustrates it in verses 2 and 3, and then he concludes verses 4 to 6. So let's work through this bit of the chapter, see what there is for us. First, verse 1, Paul gives us the principle that the law has authority while we live. Look at verse 1. Do you not know, brothers... For I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. So the law is the Lord of people by nature, it seems. But its dominion, its hold, is limited to this life. The chapter we just see before this in chapter 6 we read that anyone who has died has been freed from sin. That's there in chapter 6, verse 7. Paul exhorted the Christians in chapter 6, verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Chapter 6, verse 13, he refers to Christians as those who have been brought from death to life. So in all this, in dying to sin... What then is our relationship with the law? Well, Paul gives a principle here in verses 2 and 3, and then he illustrates the the changing of allegiances. Verses 2 and 3, here's his illustration. Look at verse 2. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. Now, let me just quickly say this analogy is not exact. In our case, the law has not died, but we have died to the law. We can only be freed from a covenant by death. Only death frees us from being bound. So in coming to Christ, the Christian does not any longer rely on the law for his salvation. He renounces relying upon works, which only leads to death. This is a change that Paul illustrates here by marriage. Paul shows that death leads to freedom. Now, his point is not that only death can free a spouse to remarry. He is not addressing the issue of of remarriage here and and divorce. What Paul is showing is that we can't have two masters at once. That's his point. His point is not against remarriage, but against bigamy. And then simply to illustrate that we have only one master. And if Christ is our master, then what can no longer be our master? The law. So however we relate to the law, we do not relate to the law as our master. So he concludes in, in verses four to six, that believers have died to the law and now we are, as it were, married to Christ, verse four. So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sarks, the sinful nature, the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies. So that we bore fruit for death, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So when you understand this, you see what Paul is doing is effectively he's filling out a little bit more of what he said about the new life that's come that he's talked about in chapter 6. So again, back to chapter 4, Greg showed us it's by faith. We go into this new life. It's our relation with God uh, through Christ we see in chapter 5. And he's begun to explore what that looks like in chapter 6. And now here in chapter 7, in this bit, he's filling that out. Uh, We died to sin through Christ so that we might bear fruit to God. The law only aroused sinful passions that led to death. And Paul has said things like this before about the law. If you look back in chapter 4, just before the bit, that Greg was dealing with in verse 15, chapter 4, 15. Paul said that law brings wrath and that where there is no law, there is no transgression. And Paul follows this up in chapter 5 in verse 20. He'd even gone so far as to say that the law was added so that the trespass might increase. So here the law seems to simply serve as the occasion for sin being aroused and and stimulated. It's something that we want to be released from. He says here in chapter 7 in verse 6, it is the old way. Now, uh, some people's translations are going to be using the word flesh. Some people are using, uh, have the the phrase sinful nature there in verse 5. It's again down in verse 18 in chapter 7 and in verse 25 it's a translation of the Greek word sarx, uh, which most, most translations render flesh. Uh, I, I think I prefer the translation flesh. I'm actually reading the 1984 NIV here, and it has chosen to translate it sinful nature. And I think for a good reason. They want to make it clear that that part of our nature that continues in rebellion against God, which scripture here calls sarks, or most simply flesh, The NIV translators wanted to make clear that this is a spiritual component of us. So that's why they chose not to translate it as flesh. It's a spiritual element. Uh, The translators uh, wanted to avoid wrongly identifying sin with our physical body and making the New Testament sound like Plato in teaching that spiritual is good and physical flesh is bad. Uh, The Bible doesn't teach that spiritual is good and flesh is bad. You realize that. So everything that's spiritual is not good. The dude you run into on a trip who's doing some wacko supernatural things that you have no scientific explanation for can be hooked up with Satan or a demon. Jesus is really clear that there's a spiritual reality beyond the good. It's not just good stuff. On the other hand, we also realize That there is much that is good about our bodies. They're made by God. They're made even our bodies to reflect him. So we reject the, the Greek or Platonic idea that the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. And that's why the NIV translators here took that word sarx, which is most straightforwardly flesh, and they put in sinful nature, which is more vague, and they mean it to be more helpful. And it's true that God made this world not some platonic demiurge. And God made this world good. Matter was God's idea. So whatever this sarks, this flesh is, this sinful nature, it isn't simply to be identified with our physical bodies. But now here we see in verse 6, the great change has taken place and now we live in the new way, the way of the spirit. He says up in verse 4, we belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead so Christians now live in the new age that's begun friend I hope this is making sense to you I hope it's not a surprise for you after you've been assured of the salvation we have through faith in Christ from chapter 4 I hope it's not a shock to your system to realize that you my regenerated and justified friend will struggle with sin that's part of what it means to be in this fallen world however overjoyed we may be to read in the book of Romans that we are free uh, that we're not finally controlled by sin and that's a joyous message Uh, we, we want to lean into that message we want to hear Paul carefully sins domineering of our lives and selves has been contradicted by God no more do you and I know hopelessness In our sins, because we have been freed from the threat of the wrath of God hanging over our heads because of the death of Christ. His righteousness has been given to all who believe in Him. We've also begun to experience that power of God in freeing us from the power of sin itself in our lives. So, positively, as Paul put it here, we've been released from the terrible task of bearing fruit for death. That's what he. Puts it like in verse 5. We've now been born again. Regenerated in order, he says, uh, there at the end of verse 4, to bear fruit to God. How wonderful is that? You know, from those terrible planes of the depravity in the end of one and all through two and the beginning of three. And now the great news of justification and vindication through faith in Christ. We now see some of the fruition of that in the believer's life. And that's our final goal isn't it? We we want to bear fruit to God. We want to bring glory to God. He has been a good God to us. He is a good God to us. And we want our lives if nothing else to be a walking illustration of that in the world that he is a good God. We we want our whole lives to give testimony to this truth that he is good. That all the slander of the demonic realms against him, is it's all false. He really is good and real good and only good. And we've known that in our lives. There's no reason ever to rebel against him. There's no reason ever to turn from him or against him. So so we are, are greedy for opportunities not to show off ourselves but to show off God's goodness in his freeing us from the Power of sin in our lives. Friends, I, I rejoice that even different congregations are represented here. So I trust this can scatter to many people, but I hope in your own congregation you are seeing this kind of joy at knowing that we have been freed from the power of sin. And I pray that you're seeing that in your congregation. I certainly pray you're seeing that here at Desert Springs for those of you who are part of this congregation and whatever other congregations are represented here. It's a wonderful thing that we have been freed from the power of sin in our lives. So our relationships with God's rule means that God's rules are no longer our master. Well, let's move on to the next question that Paul addresses. It comes up naturally because Paul seems to have spoken so negatively about the law. And if Paul's going to speak this negatively about the law, then of course... It's not surprising if it brings to our mind the question well then are God's rules good? Well I think that's what he's addressing here in verses 7 to 12. Is the law good? Paul defends the law as good from his own experience. He seems to be a kind of every man with his own experience being presented as a way that it kind of reprises Adam's experience or Israel's experience and that's Significant, I think makes this passage universally appreciated. But most fundamentally, I think it is, a, it is a reflection on Paul's own experience. He turns to his own life to consider more the relation between law, the law and sin. And perhaps there'd been some teaching in the Roman church, which was confusing to them on just this point. Perhaps it was no more than the, the sinful heart looking for a way to avoid obedience to God or to pridefully put God in our debt by attempting to obey him as a kind of paying him back. But for whatever reason, Paul addresses this question. Is the law sinful? And he gives the answer here, look down in verse seven. Romans chapter seven, verse seven. Well, he says, certainly not. He said, indeed, I would not have known what, Sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was. If the law had not said do not covet. But sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment. Produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law sin is dead. The law did arouse sinful passions in me. Paul had said up in verse 5. But only by sin taking the occasion of the law. So the culprit isn't the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. The culprit is sin. Law didn't create sin, but it does discover sin. It draws it out of its hiding. John Calvin said that without the law, we are either too dull to discern our own depravity, or else we are made entirely devoid of sense through self-flattery. Man, that's a truth. So Paul says here in verse 8 that sin used me. Even the wonderful moral clarity provided by the law. Whether it's the written law of the Jews or like we're thinking of last night from chapter 2, the moral law of creation and conscience provided for the Gentiles. Either way, it wasn't enough to save Paul. Friends, Paul's own experience here is a good example of how knowledge alone will not help. We need a change of heart. I love Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. God's moral law clearly pierces the heart of every sinner in Albuquerque this morning by the sunrise, by the majestic mountains, by the conscience being stirred, part of the image of God in every single person regardless of their religious training. And yet, friends, so many of them I I dare say most of them will not obey it. Even more clearly, God's written word is is read and heard by, I would guess, if you have 800,000 people in Albuquerque, I'm guessing there are literally thousands and thousands that tomorrow morning will hear the word of God read. Maybe not in evangelical churches, but in Roman Catholic churches, In Lutheran churches, in churches that still read the Bible in their services, you know. I think evangelical churches preach the Bible if we say that we believe the gospel. But in our services, generally, many days as I travel around, I find there's 30 minutes of singing and 30 minutes of preaching. And no one takes any time to read the Bible or pray. Those are things our grandparents did in church. If we want to hear that these days, we have to go to a liturgical service. I would encourage you if you're an evangelical church, start reading the Bible again publicly. Start giving time to reading the Bible. You know, have have your sermon shorter or a few less songs or you know what, stay for longer than 59 minutes in your service. (laughs) And if you're finding some people get really upset at that, let them go to somebody else's church. There are plenty around that will serve them. Have a church for people who are hungry for God. Spend so long in public prayer that the people who only pretend to know God will be bored. (laughs) Oh, friends, I'm more serious than you realize. (laughs) Reading God's word, we hear about God's rules. We we see God's goodness demonstrated. And yet, regardless of how many thousands tomorrow morning will hear God's rules, how many will be changed by them? Why isn't everyone changed by them? Why aren't even most people who hear them read changed by them? Is there something wrong with God's truth? Is there something wrong with God's law? No. We don't need anything less than God's truth. But we do also need God's spirit accompanying his truth. One note here on verse 8 people have wondered what Paul was referring to when he says there at the beginning of verse 8, apart from law, sin is dead. I think all Paul is saying there is that knowledge of sin comes by the law. It's that general observation that Paul has been making throughout Romans that knowledge of the truth, unaccompanied by a change of heart, only serves to exacerbate sin and to bring it out more clearly. Anyway, look at uh, chapter 7, verses 9 to 11. Paul simply restates this truth from his own experience. Look there at 7, 9. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, Put me to death. Uh, we've been for some years in our Wednesday night Bible study church in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And pretty recently in 2nd Corinthians, we were in chapter 3, verse 14. I'm, I'm reminded there how Paul reflects on the dullness, even of those who had God's law. 2nd uh, Corinthians three, fourteen. We were thinking about this just this past Wednesday night. Their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Friends, we can only really understand the law in light of Christ. So here in Romans 7, Paul says in verse 9 that he was alive apart from the law. When was that? What's he talking about here? Well, I think... If at a break, if you talk to Greg, I think he's more certain about that than I am. I'm not entirely sure when he's talking about I think he could be referring to himself when he was a child. If he's personifying Israel's experiences, this would clearly be the period before the law's given at Sinai. Maybe it was Paul self-righteously thinking he was alive spiritually as long as his eyes were veiled to his own self-righteousness. So that would be any time before the appearance of the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. But at one time... Perhaps the weight of the law was lost on him. Now, whenever that was, we see here in verse 10 that the commandment did come, and when it came, it brought death in that it was an occasion for sin. It's not that God's will misfired, you know, that he meant to save people through the commandments, but it just didn't work. No, friends, the commandment stood as a way to life for anyone who would obey them perfectly. The law is a beautiful expression of God's own character. That's why the psalmist can delight in the law of God, rapturously praise it. It's an expression of the author of life and it's, it's consistent with his image. But friends, it can't effect any of those things. The law can't make that happen. That's like thinking an x-ray is actually a prescription. No, it just shows you what is. That's what the law does. It's a description. It's a beautiful description. So what happened, he says here, was actually tragic. In verse 11, we see that sin deceives Paul, as it has every person. And through the commandment, put him to death spiritually. And friends, isn't isn't that what sin is like? Sin deceives us, promising sweetness, but turns into very great bitterness. Either in this life or failing that. And what a mercy it is when sin is made bitter in this life. Because if sin is never made bitter in this life, there will be an eternity of bitterness to come. Friend, be very careful of sin beguiling you. The great Puritan John Owen said, I would rather meet a hundred devils roaring than one smiling. Pray sin be obvious to you. Sin is personified here as some kind of scheming, ravenous thing that seizes and kills. It's not that it's even an honest, open opponent, but it feeds on ignorance and desires. It hides in shadows. It's a parasite. has no life in itself, only death. Sin, in this sense, is not so much our opponent as our ambusher, our assassin, our betrayer, our enslaver, our murderer. And as Paul showed so clearly in Romans 1 and 2 and 3. This has been the experience of everybody. Gentile or Jew. However, we have known God's truth. However, much of God's truth we have known. We have rejected it. He's explained this theologically in chapter 5. In our all being united in Adam. We have in the rejecting of God's truth, been mortally wounded in our own spirits. But Paul got into all this out of his concern that God's law not be slandered. And so we see here in verse 12 his conclusion, the law is holy and righteous and good. Look in chapter 7 at verse 12 is his conclusion of this. So then, The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. God's law is good. Uh, By this brief but careful treatment of the function of God's law in someone's life, Paul has separated out the the good law from the sin that so nearly follows the good law that it almost makes us, it's prey, it's stalking us. And, And my Christian friend, carefully hear how Paul was... Defending the law and yet confessing his own sin, but distinguishing himself from his sin. It's a good model of this. He keeps doing this in, in the verses we've yet to look at. But do note that without dodging responsibility for his sin, Paul separates himself from his sin in his own self-definition. Do not define yourself by your sin. You may struggle with drinking too much. Don't define yourself by your sin. You may struggle with sexual desires for people of the same gender. Do not define yourself by your sin. Cultivating that understanding of yourself is a misunderstanding of the image of God in you. It simply is not accurate. The image of God in you is more than the sum of your desires. It is more fundamental than your desires. There is something more at the root of you than your sexual desires. And cultivating that understanding of yourself will make it harder to repent of sin and to know the glorious image that God is calling you to live out. Friend, our world is very unhelpful to us in battling sin. I'm at the end of a cold right now. I trust I'm at the end of a cold right now. I don't take that cold as my identity. You know, I can be tempted to at points. But friends, like diagnosis is for the patient. Exposure of our sin is useful for the Christian. We need to hear the thunderings of the law if we're to grasp accurately God's holy character and if we're to comprehend the sweetness of the gospel. An outstanding question that may have been provoked then was basically... That third question, then, do God's rules kill us? And that's what the last verses of our passage, 13 to 25, are about. Paul here is considering the question he discussed in chapter 5. Well, why do we die then? If, if we are vindicated now before God, as we thought about in chapter 4, why do we die? And it might seem as if the law has been pretty nearly associated with killing us. In verse 10, he even says that it was through the commandment that he was put to death. So if the commandment isn't the murderer, then... At least it's a near accessory to the crime. But Paul lays out in the rest of the chapter that in fact, death, spiritual death, physical death, comes not from the law, but from what? From sin. Look there in verse 13 at the beginning. He states this question there. Basically, did the good law kill us? Verse 13, did that which is good then become death to me? And then look at how quickly and firmly he answers that in verse 13. No, he says, by no means. May genoito. I was taught my Greek in 1978, a long time ago, by a fallen Presbyterian clergyman who at that point swore, which was surprising to me in a divinity school. Uh, But he was, after all, a fallen Presbyterian minister. But he said that that word may genoito is as strong as Paul ever gets. It means... And then there was a line of expletives, <laughs> which I won't reproduce, but it, it's, it's a very strong negative. No, it no my, by no means, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. So the law drew out sin. It exposed sin for what it really is. The commandment is the occasion for sin's sinfulness to be manifested. Transgression seems to bring out more clearly the nature of sin against God. It's amazing when you stop and think about it that sin is so bad that it can even take what is so good, the law of God, and use it for bad. It is creative in its destruction. It contradicts God and all that he is for. It is basically against God it comes out in this inclination to immorality in transgressions of God's law in selfishness and in a thousand other ways but it is at root it is opposition to God and God's law coming so clearly helps to bring out sin's opposition to God clearly it brings out sin's sinfulness so in the rest of the chapter then verses 14 to 25 we see this personal moving statement of bondage to sin And Paul is saying, to be more precise, the focus of my problem wasn't my being bound to the law. He did not want to be misunderstood as blaspheming God's law. No, the the problem was my being bound to sin. Look there in verse 14. Romans 7, verse 14. Paul confesses that I, in myself, I'm unspiritual, ignorant, disobedient. Verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate to do, I do. But if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. So Paul says that the law is good and spiritual, but he he wants to do the right thing, doesn't want to sin, but he says he's unspiritual, a slave to sin, and that he's baffled by this. He fails to do good and he does Sin. And this he ascribes not to the law at all. The problem is not the law, he says. The problem is in me. Sin. The sin is mine. So Paul affirms the law is spiritual, but he confesses that he is carnal. The law is great, but it doesn't bring any power with it. The law is like the tool or, or the toy you get at Christmas. Good. But if batteries are not included, it doesn't work. You know? Well, the law gives us God's path, but it gives us no power in itself to follow that path. Now, we shouldn't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. No believer is subject to total defeat and bondage. Paul has just told us in chapter 6 of the newness that should characterize the believer's life. And it's just a statement here, like this one in verse 14, that people have said makes it clear to them that Paul is not writing this about his experience as a Christian, sold as a slave. To sin? Well, perhaps he's not. Perhaps he's referring to his experience before Christ. But friends, even as a Christian, I could understand how Paul could be honestly recognizing the fleshly nature that we Christians still drag around with us in this world. Uh, Many writers have assumed that Paul is describing himself before he was a Christian. But I think that even of the Christian, we could say with John Calvin... We are so completely driven by the power of sin that our whole mind, our whole heart, all our actions are inclined to sin. We are so addicted to sin that we can do nothing of our own accord but sin. So here in chapter 7, verse 15, Paul says that his present experience, it's in the present tense, his present experience is that he does what he doesn't want to do and doesn't do what he wants to do. Well, again, people think, can this be said of a Christian Friends, look at your own experience. I mean, the Christian life is a life of conflict, including conflict with our own sinful nature. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 5, where the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit was contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so you do not do what you want. Friend, that warfare between the flesh and the spirit is, at least in Galatians 5, very clearly describing what Christians experience. And I for one am not persuaded that a non-Christian will struggle in the same way or will experience the same conflict. Those who are spiritually dead may hear some thunderings of conscience, but they don't think much of them unless God's spirit is convicting and converting them. And though they may appear to, they certainly don't act much on them or certainly not for a sustained period. I really appreciate the way in Romans 4, Greg brought out the fact that Abraham's faith was shown to be true by being faithful for a long time. He trusted God's promise not just immediately, but there was a, a long period of time. Well, true faith, friends, endures. Again, read, read Romans 3. Read what God has done for us in Christ. Again, I, I love what Calvin says here. Regeneration only begins in this life. The remnants of the flesh that remain always follow their corrupt affections and thus arouse the struggle against the spirit. Nothing but perversity has remained in the heart of man since Adam was deprived of the image of God. Paul is depicting in his own person the character and extent of the weakness of believers. Close quote. Well, here in verse 16, Paul's own conscience testifies to the goodness of the law. He says it's not the law, but it's the sin inside Paul that sins. He says in verse 17. Now, is is this a dodge at taking responsibility for his own sin? I don't think so. Paul is simply frankly acknowledging the strength of sin within him. He's not absolving himself. He simply describes the depth of his interior battle that's going on. His body, his flesh, his members are a part of himself. And he's doing the, the very difficult job of describing the internal conflict of, of one person. Again, I think that another piece of evidence that Paul is discussing a regenerated person is exactly this. Only they would experience such a distinction from sin as Paul makes here. And in this, I'm struck by Paul's humility and his honesty. Uh, Some of us may sort of play at humility. But Paul here, I think, is truly humble. The great preacher of the early church, Chrysostom, said that if we speak evil of ourselves a thousand times and yet are affronted when another Says anything of the kind. This is not humility. This is not a confession of sin. But only pretense and vanity. We assume the appearance of humility. That we may be admired and praised. But that's not what Paul's doing here. His humility seems to be real and profound. He's he's describing a struggle he has known. Perhaps that he was still knowing. He continues there in verse 18, describing this internal conflict with sin. Look there, chapter 7, verse 18. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature, Sark's flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Okay, follow Paul here. We're just about to go to lunch. You've got a little more mental energy. Let's squeeze the last bit out of the tube. I think Paul is intending to take the blame. I don't think he's trying to dodge it. I think Paul is trying to take the blame rather than we blame the law. So in verse 18, he he identifies himself with his flesh. He, He says that it's not good, that he's not good. And he distinguishes himself from his flesh. Paul expands on his evil actions contrary to his desires there in verse 19. And then again in verse 20, Paul acknowledges the strength of sin within him. He summarizes this internal conflict there in verse 21. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. He's just saying that evil always seemed to be present in him, even when he wanted to do what was right. And then Paul states an internal conflict again in verses 22 and 23. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. So in Paul's inner man, he delights in God's law. And that's a great statement, isn't it? That he can delight in God's law. To delight in God's law in his inner man. I think only a Christian truly delights in God's law in his inner man. But Paul says he sees another law, another authority at work in his members working against God's law, taking him captive, making him a prisoner in the sense of overcoming him in certain specific sins that he hates. And friends, we've got to remember this is, this is Paul. If Paul knew struggles like this, what should you and I expect? Knowing God's will does not end our struggles. And as delightful as the law may be to our inner man, like verse 22 it was for Paul, the law will not convert us. The law shall delight the child of God, but it shall never deliver the child of God. Spurgeon put it, there is a little hell within the heart of every child of God, and only the great God of heaven can overmaster that mischievous indwelling sin. I love the way William Arnott put it in his uh, commentary on the Proverbs. This uh, 19th century Scottish preacher said, The difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that the, the one, the unconverted, has sins and the other, the converted, has none. That's not the difference. But that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. Friend, that little mental image is the best thing I've heard in the last 30 years for helping people figure out whether they're a Christian. I mean, Galatians, works of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit. But outside of Scripture, that little summary, it's so good I'm going to read it to you again. The difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God when he's convicted about those sins, And the other, the converted man, takes part with a reconciled God against his own hated sins. I think I see in this passage a description of the civil war that there is within the Christian. I don't mean by that in any way to endorse defeatism. In the Christian, to acknowledge that we struggle is no approval of sin. It's a sober assessment of our situation. It's the foundation of knowing how we can respond realistically. Friend, it it doesn't do any good to present pictures of the Christian life that are exaggerated and therefore false. Uh, This is one reason I think the the teaching of perfectionism, by that I don't mean obsessed with getting everything just right. I don't mean the modern psychological sense. I mean the theological doctrine of perfectionism, that the the Christian in this life can move to a place where they do not sin. Uh, John Wesley taught this, and it's one of the worst things about John Wesley. There were many really good things about John Wesley. This was a terrible thing. Because the people who always go for this doctrine are the people who understand the Bible least. They're the youngest spiritually, and they're hurt the most by it. Now, time instructs most people out of believing this error. You know? If you have a friend you've come with who you know is tempted by perfectionism and they think they have entered into, as our Nazarene brothers and sisters say, entire sanctification, simply look at them and stamp hard on their toe. See how they respond. It could be an instructive theological lesson. In this world, the Christian knows sin. And we're helped by realizing that. What that means for our church is that if we preach Romans 6 to keep us away from defeatism, just from being dour and gloomy all the time, realizing that we can have victory over sin. Romans 6 is so helpful for that. I think Romans 7 warns us against any kind of triumphalism and our Christian gatherings and celebrations. We want to be careful with our songs. So, Drew, James, Matt, Sarah, whoever's working with, all the folks who are working with music and in your own churches, be careful about singing things that present too triumphalistic a vision of the Christian life. It's a fine line between aspirational, well we know we should aspire to good things, yes we should and really just over-exaggerated stuff that means that the normal Christian sitting there who struggles with sin is just, hears these songs and thinks, I got fired from my job this week. My relationship with my wife is rough right now. Uh, I, don't, I don't feel like any of these things we're seeing. If, if there is no way they can relate to our happy, clappy services, then we may want to stop looking at the top 40 song list and start looking at the book of Psalms to figure out the tone of our church services, Okay. A passage like Romans 7, I think, helps us with that kind of realism. Friends, our victory comes not because we are sinless, but because of the blood of Jesus. So what becomes very sweet to the Christian each Lord's Day when we gather is the blood of Jesus, because our triumph is in Jesus Christ. So we come to celebrate, not what a great week we've had, or how good we are, or how powerful we've seen God work among us, though all of those things can be in a measure true. But, friends, all of those things can be contradicted in Christian experience any given week, also. But you know what can never be contradicted? What God has done for us in Christ. So, the gospel is the center of our services, not just in case a non Christian comes in, but because as Christians, we have nothing else to preach. We need the gospel every week, it's our hope. We don't pretend that we are now sinless and perfectly virtuous in order to honor Him as we should. Well, we should conclude. If, if rules won't win the conflict, what will? And the answer here is in the last couple of verses. Look in Romans 7, verse 24. We don't need rules for this job. We need a rescuer. And Christ will be our rescuer. Look at verse 24. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the flesh, in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And for in the only way such a conflicted creature, as Paul here puts himself, or or such conflicted creatures as we ourselves are, will ever know final victory is if we are rescued by somebody else. And that someone else is Jesus Christ. That's the good news that he has died on the cross, taking the penalty for all of our transgressions of God's law. And he has been raised by his heavenly father and he has presented his sacrifice to his heavenly father and has had that sacrifice accepted. And so we are called now into his presence. Friends, who rescued Paul? God rescued Paul. He saved him through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So God is our hope during our struggles. Here and now Jesus has saved believers from the guilt of their sins and he is saving us now from the very power of sin. I could stop here or I could give you a really good Spurgeon quote. I'm a Baptist. All in favor of me stopping here, please put up your hand. You can be honest, we're Christians, we love each other. Maybe you need to go to the bathroom, you're worried about your kid, you need to eat. Everybody who wants to just hear the Spurgeon quote, and then I will stop. Raise your hand if you want to hear the Spurgeon quote. Sorry to do that at your church, Ryan, but this isn't a gathering in your church. It's just a, a mixed assembly here. Spurgeon said, what a mercy it is that the Lord Jesus has struck a deadly blow at our sin. He has broken the head of it. It is a monster and has immense vitality. But it is a broken-backed, broken-legged, broken-headed monster. There it is. It lies hissing and spitting and writhing, capable of doing as much mischief. But he that wounded it will smite it again and again, until at last it shall utterly die. Thank God it has not vitality enough to get across the River Jordan. No sinful desire shall ever swim on that stream. Yeah! Yeah! Let's pray. Lord, we struggle with sin and we are fired by the hope of opening our eyes on a day when we shall know no sin, when all shadows flee away. Carry us safely home to yourself. Teach us the truth of your word, of your law, and of the victory we have in Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.